Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm one of your hosts, Alejandra Bronfman. Our guest today is Alex Nading. He's the author of Mosquito Trails, Ecology, Health, and the Politics of Entanglement, which was published by the University of California Press just this year in 2014. Alex, welcome and thanks so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed this book. And it's a, it's a book about a lot of things. It's a story about dengue fever in Ciudad Sandino and the efforts to eradicate it. But it's also much more than that. It's a story with more than human actors, including viruses, garbage, houses, weather, budgets, and uh, their entanglements. And I think that this is a really innovative and productive way to account for environmental and social change. But before we get into the framing, could you just tell us a little bit about how you came to the project? And if possible, if you could include something about the ill-tempered cat who seemed to accompany the entire process. <laughs> okay, um, I will try to do that. Yeah, so uh, thanks again. And uh, the, the, the origin of the project uh, this was this began as a dissertation uh, in cultural anthropology. Um, I was at the University of Wisconsin Madison and looking for a dissertation project. I knew I was interested in uh, in the environment in Latin America and in, in Nicaragua specifically, and I actually came to to Nicaragua at the Ciudad Sandino. Um, looking at environmental health in a more uh, familiar sense. I was looking at um, the way people were dealing with the long-term legacies of industrial pollution and contamination in water, uh, something that I'm still interested in. Um, but during my first field visit, as, as often happens, I ran across a problem that I just couldn't uh, couldn't uh, stop thinking about, and that was uh, mosquito-borne disease and, and, and dengue fever in particular. Um, and so... Um, as I had gotten interested in environmental health, I'd become more and more interested in medical anthropology, and I saw dengue, um, this disease that's transmitted by uh, an urban-dwelling mosquito called Aedes aegypti. I saw this disease as a as a great way to kind of marry uh, my interest in the environment and in and in and in medicine and health, uh, specifically public health. So um, I returned um, a little over a year after that initial field trip to start the project, and as it developed, um, I became more and more interested in, in in what you mentioned earlier: these kind of more than human relationships uh, between people and things, and people and mosquitoes and viruses and and other and other things. And so um, that's sort of the origin of the book and how it grew. Uh, and uh, particular kinds of interspecies relationships were very uh, central to how my thinking developed in the field. Uh, so as you mentioned, um, I, I, I talk in the acknowledgments to the book um, about uh, having uh, adopted uh, a pet in the field, uh, which is actually fairly common for anthropologists. Um, I adopted a little cat um, who uh, gave me fits throughout the field fieldwork period, um, as you can read about in the acknowledgments. Um, but uh, what I'd say in the acknowledgments, which is actually true, is that engaging with this animal um, and uh, sort of trying to raise it up in this weird situation actually really helped 
me do my field work. Um, I found people engaging with me through the pet, um, wondering why I would keep a pet. <laughs> um, and um, it, it sort of opened my eyes to uh, a lot of kinds of questions that anthropologists uh, hadn't been asking so much, um, especially when it came to health, these questions about more than human relationships. So um, the cat was also, of course, a companion um, that I ended up uh, uh, moving back to the United States with me, and she's still going, she's still alive, uh, and still giving me fits. Um, I'm I'm glad to hear that she's still around and still giving you fits. That's just very sounds very apt. Um, so in some ways, you also became part of this notion of entanglement. You were entangled with the cat, and that seems like a good way to to start talking about the book and this idea of entanglement. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about why that seemed the right theoretical tool for your project. It seems like you draw from Bruno Latour, and I'm wondering if you draw from others and how you came to choose that as the way to as the way to frame the whole thing. For sure. So entanglement, it, it really took me a while to come to this particular uh, sort of concept as an anchor. Um, and um, I, uh, in the original dissertation, that term and that idea is really not very much in evidence. Um, but what I was thinking about, as and, and you, you rightly point out, was um, how different people in, in anthropology and in other places have theorized uh, relationships across species and other kinds of borders um, between things and animals and people. And um, the term entanglement um, worked for me for a couple of reasons. One, um, it implies a kind of ongoing, complicated, and never quite complete, and perhaps even never quite satisfying kind of relationship. So I really was influenced um, a lot by Latour and the actor network theorists, but I would say equally by a related set of theory from feminist science studies. Um, and I'm thinking there of uh, mainly Don, Donna Haraway and um, Karen Barad, um, Anna Singh, and others who've worked a lot uh, on how to do social science and theory uh, across species borders. Um, and uh, they each use that term entanglement in different ways. Um, but what um, it's what what really made the, the the concept work for me was that it seemed to get at um, uh, people's struggles to be related uh, despite different um, social, technological, and political forces trying to sever particular kinds of relationships, and people's dealing with the fact that they had to be related to things and objects they maybe didn't necessarily want or desire a, a, a relationship with, that is, with mosquitoes, with garbage, the other kinds of things that I talk about in the book. So entanglement, to me, um, gets at that sense of, um, of, of sort of networked relationships but it also gets at um, the kinds of relationships that we're sort of stuck with um, or bound up in, whether we like it or not, um, and how we continue relating throughout uh, uh, our lives and throughout the lives of the other things in which we're involved. That makes sense, and it especially it makes sense with the in relationship to the other notion that really becomes central in your stories is this notion of attachment, right? Mm -hmm. And that that follows from entanglement. And I want to talk about that a little bit later, especially with the with the attachments that come up with between the brigadistas particularly and the mosquitoes. Um, but maybe you can also just walk us through, uh, literally through the, um, the notion of trail and how that came to be a part of the, of the story as well. Sure. Well, one of the things that I tried to do in this book was to, to follow along, uh, something that I'd found that a, 
probably you see more in environmental anthropology and um, in other kinds of work, and that is uh, methodologically, how do you study, first of all, a very large community, Ciudad Sandino is a city of some 100, 150,000 people, um, and how do you study a problem that doesn't really have a beginning, middle, or end, and a problem that moves uh, with people that are moving around with that problem. And it struck me that uh, one way to do it is, of course, to find out who the key actors are and sample them in some way and set them down for interviews. And certainly I tried to do some of that, but it seemed equally important if I was going to understand the relationship between health and the urban environment to do my best to try to reside in that environment, which I did, but also to... to work with people as they moved around in that environment. And so the brigadistas, these community health workers who play a big role in the book, uh, garbage collectors, garbage scavengers, uh, epidemiologists and others, one thing they all have in common is that they all uh, have to do work in the field. Um, And the field for them are the streets and households and dumps and uh, hospitals uh, of the city, um, Ciudad Sandino and nearby Managua, Nicaragua's capital. So, trailing this idea of following people around while they followed mosquitoes around uh, sort of seemed like a nice way to think about what I was doing. But in addition to that, um, I was really thinking about the way in which the paths of viruses and mosquitoes and people are actually marked out in the landscape and on bodies. So, um, you know, these things leave evidence in our immune Immune, immune system memory, they leave evidence on our skins, they leave evidence in our households. Um, and so a trail is also a kind of, um, this is an idea I get from uh, the anthropologist Tim Ingold, uh, but other people have talked about this as well. A trail is, is literally uh, a tracing a mark in the landscape. Um, and so um, I think that um, when you're sort of doing the kind of what the CDC calls disease detection that a lot of these brigadistas and others are trying to do, finding out where dengue cases happened and how, uh, you really are looking for those traces of things, not the things themselves. It's a really fascinating way to pull all of that together. And I want to talk about the specifics of the garbage collectors and the brigadistas in a minute. But before we do that, perhaps we can just set the stage and talk a little bit about Ciudad Sandino and the kind of city it is. It seems like a very fascinating sort of place. Um, it's a new city uh, in a lot of ways. And also the the backdrop against which it was formed in terms of the changing politics of Nicaragua. So can we can you talk us through that a little bit? Sure. Well, there's a there's a couple of key dates for for my purposes in Nicaraguan history that really frame uh, this project. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of ethnographies go deep into colonial archives or records, and I didn't really have to do that because, as you said, Ciudad Sandino, the main field site, uh, wasn't founded until uh, 1969, 1970. And the first key date then is a, is a series of uh, floods that happened uh in uh, Managua, next door, the, the main capital city, uh, that forced the displaced a lot of uh, of the poorest people in that city, and they were relocated to um, uh, a government uh, mandated or sort of designed emergency settlement, um, uh, which was just uh, outside Managua. Um, the other date, um, the next one, is the 1972 earthquake that destroyed some 90 percent of the city of Managua, um, pretty famous uh, uh, event uh, catastrophe that uh, is still well-remembered and still marked out in Managua's landscape. After that, um, about 10,000 people were moved to that same area, the area that later became Ciudad Sandino. Um, and those people, as I describe in the book, um, were uh, sort of uniquely uh, relocated for Nicaragua. The 
the dictatorship at the time, Somoza dictatorship, actually um, turned these people from kind of slum squatter settlers uh, into rent-paying citizens. So basically what they did is they moved people onto what was farmland uh, owned by one of the cronies of the uh, dictatorship um, and um, allowed those people uh, to purchase on credit uh, plots of land where they could build houses. And those original families um, got together with uh, Catholic-based community organizers and ended up sort of agitating for uh, basic infrastructure services, streets and pipes and that sort of thing. Um, and as they were doing that, of course, they also became hooked into uh, the Sandinista movement, the sort of uh, left-wing people's movement to depose that dictator, which was successful in 1979. So uh, the city, uh, the sort of relocation settlement renamed itself Ciudad Sandino after Augusto Sandino, the sort of the namesake of the Sandinista movement uh, in 1979. And uh, over the course of the 80s, it remained sort of a hotbed of experiments and um, sort of uh, community-based sort of left-influenced development. Um, and after the revolution was uh, deposed in the 1990s, um, it suffered uh, what a lot of lower-income urban communities suffered uh, in Nicaragua at the time, which is a real rollback of social services. Um, that rollback uh, sort of proceeded apace through the 90s until 1998, the other sort of big major date in recent Nicaraguan history, which was when Hurricane Mitch came through and displaced even more people. And once again, uh, 1999 and 2000 saw a new influx of migrants into Ciudad Sandino. So the short version is that Ciudad Sandino is a community of people who um, have been uh, moved there from other places. So um, it is now um, quite a large independent city, um, but it has uh, different sort of enclaves of people who've lived there for different amounts of time. It tends to be a sending community for uh, maquiladora labor um, nearby, also for labor outside Nicaragua and uh, Costa Rica, Panama, and other places where there's more work. So it's a very fluid kind of place. Um, but it's also a place that um, has sort of been the subject of a whole series of different kinds of urban development uh, initiatives. And that was what was really interesting to me about it. Yeah, that uh, the, the way that, that uh, the efforts to organize space are really important to this story. So um, you introduce a bunch of different actors and in the efforts, I guess, to, to follow these mosquito trails and to really to track them and to, to find them and to eradicate a lot of them. And the actors that you introduce in the first section, uh, after setting the stage, are um, all have to do with garbage, surprisingly, uh -huh. or maybe not surprisingly, if you work with mosquitoes, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so I was really surprised at the array of, of different kinds of people and the, and the conflicts and politics among them. So there are the recolectores the chatarreros, the churiqueros, and also the state. And so I wonder if you could talk about the conflicts among these actors and how and why they matter to dengue fever. Sure. Well, so the mosquito that spreads dengue, Aedes aegypti, is sort of unique among even disease-carrying disease mosquitoes and that it's highly adapted to people. So it lives um, and breeds, that is, lays its eggs um, in mostly... Uh, anthropogenic human-made bodies of water. But one of the places where uh, you find mosquito larvae and eggs uh, quite frequently is in um, refuse, garbage. Um, 
the classic example is discarded car tires, um, but it can be plastic bottles or other things. Well, um, during the first part of my field work in uh, 2008, the Nicaraguan government had taken note of this and also taken note of a real surge uh, in the collection of especially recyclable garbage um, and uh, decided as a health measure to crack down on uh, a quite sizable uh, informal uh, scavenging and recycling economy that um, involved um, not only uh, sort of people who bought plastic and aluminum and paper and sold it to other people, but also uh, garbage scavengers, the people you mentioned earlier called uh, churequeros. Um, and this became uh, sort, of mo- sort, sort of framed around the problem of disease, especially dengue. Um, so uh, in the book, I talk about how this plan sort of uh, was executed and a lot of the um, uh, sort of deeper uh, social conflicts that it revealed. So um, one of the things that happened while this uh, plan was executed was that um, the garbage scavengers, the churiqueros, um, uh, had uh, sort of executed a uh, strike, a, a, a kind of uh, uh, an occupation of the dumps in Managua and Ciudad Sandino and a couple of other cities in protest of the fact that city garbage collectors were uh, picking off the most valuable recyclable garbage on their routes. Um, and so... Um, this uh, strike uh, got a little bit violent, and it certainly uh, raised the issue in public of um, the garbage trade and what to do about it ethically and economically and what it meant. Um, and so in the book, I sort of talk about how that strike combined with the state sort of crackdown all occurred at a time when um, more and more people were getting involved in um, looking for garbage and using garbage as a means to survive. Um, And um, there wasn't really a clear resolution to any of this, except that um, at the end of 2008, when the global financial crisis happened, the prices for a lot of the things that people were recycling uh, and collecting and scavenging just plummeted, um, dropped. And so many of the people who had been involved sort of in an opportunistic way uh, sort of quit being involved in the garbage trade. A lot of people lost money. Um, And at the same time, uh, the scavengers um, all of a sudden ceased to be uh, an object of state scrutiny. That is, the state was interested in it when it was um, quite uh, quite a vibrant part of the economy. And when it quit being a vibrant part of the economy, for whatever reason, the state stopped being interested. So there's this really complex uh, sort of economy of, of scavenging that I talk about in the book. But uh, what it sort of the, – the, the, the interesting thing it seemed to me was that um, uh, more getting more money out of uh, scavenging actually didn't necessarily uh, make the dengue problem go away. It actually magnified the dengue problem. Um, and when the economy tanked, the scavenging economy kind of tanked, dengue was still there. Uh, but the state, uh, at least for that moment, kind of lost that intensive interest in it. Um, and I think that runs counter to a lot of narratives about the capitalization of garbage. Um, some people would say that, you know, if you can motivate people economically to collect garbage, you can solve health problems. And I actually think it's not quite that simple all the time. I think that you have to really understand the deep history and politics of garbage in order to understand how it might or might not be related to uh, solutions to public health problems. Yeah, I was really fascinated by the way you used garbage and collecting to talk about 
all kinds of economies, the moral economy, political economy, and actual financial economy, and also in the way that you use the notion of the parasite and turn that on its head, right? So that right. Who, who the, who's parasiting, who's being parasited and who's parasiting off of whom are completely different than from who we might have thought. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really like that, that, that notion. And that this was a chapter actually that I probably worked on the longest in the book. Um, I, I wrote one of the first things I wrote actually out of this project and, uh, the parasite idea came rather late. Um, but yeah, I was interested in the way that uh, accusations of parasitism and, um, sort of, they, they did sort of float around. So in one sense, the mosquito was sort of surviving parasitically off of the circulation of this stuff. In another sense, you could say that the garbage scavengers were, you know, sort of parasites on the formal economy. But in another sense, you could say that the people who um, bought the garbage from them and by extension, sort of the formal economy itself was sort of working parasitically uh, on the backs of these garbage scavengers who, by the way, in, in, in Nicaragua are, are known by the nickname hormigas, which means ants, um, because they carry around gigantic sacks of, of garbage on their backs, is what, is what I was told. So there's this interesting way in which um, the humanity of people who do these kinds of things is uh, sort of played around with and questioned in a lot of ways. And you actually followed, you actually went along with the garbage collectors, didn't you? Yes. Uh, part, so I, actually, garbage is one of the reasons I got really interested in dengue is because I, I realized that this was a um, uh, in in the sort of every so often this the city gets into um, the mode of wanting to clean up or, or, or crack down on 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 garbage uh, for largely for health reasons. And I one of the first things I witnessed in my first fieldwork trip was a dengue related crackdown. Um, and so I decided that it would be a really interesting way to kind of get to know the landscape in a different sense if I did it with these garbage collectors from the city. So I sort of signed on um, to ride along with these guys and uh, pick up garbage sacks and um, uh, ride along their routes. And uh, it got me to know the city in a, in a way that a lot of uh, field workers might not have been able to because I got to cover a lot of ground. But I also got to learn a lot about how municipal government and city planning work from the inside, um, working with the people who were basically doing infrastructure on a daily basis and helping to rebuild it. Um, so it was really informative and that led me to, to scavengers who I worked with a little bit as well. Um, but sort of learning about how things move around a city, um, especially when it looks like they're not actually working so well, um, is, is really valuable because you realize how much labor is actually going into keeping um, a, a city that might might be written off as a slum. There's actually so much labor, formal and informal, that actually helps it, uh, helps it survive as a kind of organism. Right. So the other group of people that you followed around quite closely or that you trailed quite closely were the brigadistas, of course, right? So how did you decide to focus on them for that, the second part of the, of the book? Are really, they, you talk about them throughout, but the second part is where you really get into what they do. Well, that was another sort of methodological choice. I wanted to uh, 
certainly understand state responses to dengue. That was one of the initial motivations for the project. But in Nicaragua, uh, since the revolution, there has been a tradition of engaging uh, community members in public health campaigns, dengue prevention, uh, malaria prevention, vaccination, uh, you name it. There's quite a few different kinds of you know, big campaigns. And uh, sort of taking after the Cuban revolution, the Nicaraguan uh, revolutionary government uh, trained uh, groups of people and called them uh, brigadas, brigades, and the members of those brigadistas, right? So there's a sort of paramilitary twinge to the idea. But basically, um, these are groups of people, and in Ciudad Sandino, they were largely women, um, who were paid on a part-time basis to go from house to house um, looking for evidence of dengue mosquitoes, teaching people about the life cycle of dengue mosquitoes um, and um, using a chemical larvicide and organophosphate um, to uh, deposit into uh, water sources to try to stop that mosquito from propagating. And this is uh, it's sort of bureaucratic work. They're required to um, sort of document each home visit on a special form, um, but it's also very social work. They're required to... Um, get people engaged in what's going on in the microenvironment of their household. Um, and um, I found this to be uh, really uh, fun uh, and fascinating uh, kind of way to do field work. So I became a brigadista, more or less, uh, for uh, three or, I think, four campaigns of a uh, month to six weeks apiece that took place periodically throughout the uh, 16 months or so was originally in the field. Um, and so uh, that was really the best way to me to study this public health problem from the inside. I mean, I had a choice of doing that or focusing on people who were sick with dengue and looking at dengue as a clinical problem. And I really made the concerted choice to sort of mostly think about dengue as a public health problem. And so that led me to these brigadistas. So that put you in a bit of an unusual position, didn't it? Because most of the brigadistas are women, and we should talk about the gendered aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it did, and it was, and, and I didn't honestly expect uh, that that would be the case. It wasn't part of my research design, um, and 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 I think it's one of those things that, like in retrospect, it's like how could I how could I miss this? But that that so what ended up happening is that I was one of the uh, minority uh, male brigadistas. Um, and and I, it became something that we talked about quite a bit. Um, I um, was normally partnered with another brigadista. The brigadistas tend to fan out in groups and then uh, work individually in different neighborhoods. And I would tend to shadow uh, a brigadista at a time. Um, and there was a few that I worked with uh, quite closely, and most of those were women. Um, and I uh, was um, initially sort of, apprehensive about what that would mean for my field work. But uh, I think, you know, once I got to know these people, which I did pretty well, I mean, they became pretty close friends of mine. Um, we had pretty frank and open discussions about the gendering of this problem. So dengue is not normally thought of in global health in any way as a women's issue or as something that women are particularly equipped or capable of confronting. But in fact, it ends up being uh, a, a problem that women uh, confront more often. And that's because it's a household problem. Um, and in, uh, in Nicaragua, uh, the anthropologist Florence Babb has written really wonderfully about this. In post-revolutionary Nicaragua, there was sort of this ebb of uh, sort of uh, 
uh, uh, uh, women's empowerment. That is, in the 80s, women were encouraged and actively invited into civil service and into the formal labor market. And as the economy and the revolution sort of faltered in the 1990s, there was an equally kind of uh, overt and subtle uh, sort of push of women back into domestic space and to becoming sort of moral and economic guardians of households. What this ended up doing was forcing women to actually sort of adapt that kind of uh, flexible posture towards work, where women, uh, even as they were being encouraged to become domestic again, were also being invited to do work in Maquiladoras and uh, were being invited to do this sort of peace work for the state and public health programs. Um, and so um, when I talk to women about the gendering of the mosquito problem, the dengue problem, they they recognize it very clearly as something that um, that affected them more, right? Because they were the ones who were expected socially and sometimes even legally um, to watch after the household environment to care for children who are some of the uh, most common victims of dengue. Um, and uh, at, a, at an even broader level, they were seen uh, by public health supervisors and even by one another as in some ways more capable of doing the social side of dengue prevention work. That is getting inside of people's homes, talking to them um, about cleanliness and hygiene in a way that wasn't threatening, um, in a way that was um, somehow uh, developing a kind of entanglement, right? A kind of attachment rather than a kind of alienation. Because you can imagine that having a representative of the state come into your house and tell you, tell you uh, clean this up, uh, turn this over, look, here, you're harboring mosquitoes in your house, that can be a very threatening and kind of alienating encounter. And the Brigadistas, um, were very keen to make it a, a, a productive kind of encounter. Um, and they saw their gender as key to being able to do that. And so the other thing that happens in that second section is that houses become a really important um, focus. And in, in terms, in some ways, they become a, a more than human actor. The house really figures importantly in the whole in the whole book in terms of the way the city is laid out and in terms of the way all of most of the work that happens in the entire book is about the house and around the house. Right. Yes. And, and again, like thinking about the house as a key social and ecological space. I mean, that, you know, that comes right out of classic feminist anthropology. Um, but, um, in, in a, in a sort of more, uh, in another sort of theoretical sense, what was interesting to me about Ciudad Sandino geographically is that it doesn't really have very many buildings that aren't also domestic houses. And in fact, it's gridded in such a way that almost every, uh, every lot in the, in the city is a 10 by 30 liter house lot. So the city really has no beginning and no end. Um, and much like a dengue epidemic, um, it sort of gets reproduced uh, in each sort of household um, in a kind of patterned way. And so, yeah, the, the, the design and management of house of houses and of households and what I call sort of householding, right, developing an attachment to that particular site um, was a key part of understanding and combating dengue. Um, and again, um, because many of the people I worked with worked in their houses um, as uh peace workers doing washing um, or as child carers um, or in other kinds of ways, houses were something that people had on the brain quite a bit. Um, and houses ended up being places of all kinds of different social interventions from religious uh, to political to medical. Right. You talk about the role of Christianity and so the ways that morality and transformation and belief and persuasion are all 
part of this story of houses and, and people moving in and out of them. But I want to talk about mosquitoes now. Okay. <laughs> and I want to talk about one line that, uh, that you put up at the beginning of a chapter. It says mosquitoes are single mothers. Right. So tell us, tell us about that line. Well, um, so that line came from an epidemiologist uh, who was running a, a, a training uh, for these brigadistas. And uh, she was talking about the fact that, and this is true of all mosquitoes and not just the Aedes aegypti that spreads dengue, uh, the fact that the mosquitoes that bite us, um, that want to suck our blood, um, and that happen to transmit parasites and viruses like uh, malaria and dengue are all female. Male mosquitoes don't bite us. Um, and she was trying to uh, sort of review or introduce uh, this uh, fact and the broader sort of facts of mosquito life, uh, how they reproduce uh, to the brigadistas. And um, she, she sort of came up with this metaphor, right, that dengue mosquitoes are like single mothers, right? They, they are sucking our blood because they need to reproduce. Um, it's not really something that they're doing out of any kind of uh, nefarious intent. Um, and the brigadistas, um, as it happened, uh, were uh, in the main also parents. Um, many of them, uh, as I said, were women, and many of them were um, single or um, uh, with partners who were not always present. Um, and so they actually... Uh, thought quite a bit about this metaphor and uh, found it really, really fruitful for um, uh, understanding the mosquito as something, as a kind of enemy, but also as a kind of intimate other, right? Um, uh, 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 something, a being that they um, were going to have to deal with one way or another. And so thinking about it as a single mother, um, sort of for them, sort of opened up all kinds of other types of relationships that they were developing through this work. So these women, most of them didn't know each other before they became brigadistas, but they ended up developing kinds of social attachments around um, the search for uh, mosquitoes and their and their larvae in the landscape. So uh, it's sort of, again, on one of these kind of counterintuitive situations in which um, a project that's largely, largely about supposedly at least about eradication or at least species control really becomes about um, relating to one another through relationships with uh, with these uh, mosquitoes. So um, they're the what I kind of call they were they developed a kind of ecological aesthetics to this uh, to this project. And what, by that I basically mean that um, people became aware of all kinds of attachments because they needed to contemplate the life cycles of these mosquitoes. And again, I, I would say that that awareness was, uh, was strongly gendered. I really like the way you do that and thinking about the attachments between the mosquitoes and the brigadistas as very important to both actors, right? And the way that they formed, like you say, these kind of intimate relationships with these beings, which in some ways gave them an opportunity to make to make friendships and to have this kind of career and all of those other kinds of things. And especially I, I, that struck me because I'm such a mosquito phobe that I couldn't imagine anybody developing any kind of an attachment, but the way you framed it made a lot of sense. Um, but it also actually lets us move into the third part of the book, which really is about stories and the importance of stories. And so this notion that mosquitoes are single mothers are the, is the narrative that, that, that brought, into the work, 
is one of the important stories. And, and you talk about the importance of stories in the third part with regards to the production of knowledge. And the actors in that part are the doctors, the people of the Consejo del Poder Ciudadano, which are the neighborhood organizations, and the stories. And I wonder if you can walk us through a little bit the relationship between the epidemiologists um, and uh, the state actors and the local level field workers and the ways that all of those people are mediated through stories. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, I noticed about dengue control, and this also goes to the relationship between sort of national and uh, in some sense, sort of local public health and, and what we now call global health. Right. Uh, so we start at the global level. Global health is sort of driven more and more by um, indicators, numerical uh, data sets. Uh, governments are expected to produce data on dengue, on malaria, HIV, AIDS, you name it, these sort of major diseases. And, um, and so there's an imperative for states to um, produce data, um, to turn cases and mosquito counts into, um, uh, into traveling numbers. Um, and, and I'm not the first person to notice this. Charles Briggs has written about this. Ben Stan Adams is doing some really interesting work on this now. But um, I, I, I really uh, was struck by the conflict between doing that and getting people to care um, on a daily basis about um, problems like dengue. Um, and care um, or attachment uh, or engagement, right, uh, sort of seemed to emerge less from um, uh uh, statistical data, right, or uh, those kinds of trends, right? People didn't really see themselves so much in that as they did in uh, particular narratives about health. Um, and so uh, one of the things that workers at the most sort of intimate level had to do was sort of reconcile the need to produce data with the need to tell good stories uh, uh, about the problem. And so what I write about in the last part of the book is how, um, given uh, partial resources, right? Basically inadequate resources to really produce quality data, um, and not enough time to really, uh, motivate people through, uh, through narratives about things like single mothers. People kind of muddled through anyway, right? People, um, in fact, I would argue, um, became engaged because of those kinds of gaps in the, in the, in the knowledge infrastructure of, uh, of Dengue, right? So, um, epidemiologists, that, in, in places like Ciudad and you know, brigadistas and, and then you mentioned sort of local community leaders um, were sort of grappling for ways to uh, get their neighbors uh, involved uh, in thinking about the urban environment and how it might be improved. Um, and also, um, to some extent, given Nicaragua's revolutionary past, trying to figure out ways to get them to think about um, how the environment might be otherwise and how it came to be the way it is. Um, and so there was this constant tension, it seemed to me, between data and stories. And that was something I wanted to get out in the last part of the book. Yeah. And one of the surprising thing about that last part of the book is that children somehow become at the forefront of these persuasive efforts. And so children are brought in as these bearers of stories in some ways. Yeah, there was a, a really fascinating project that I got to uh, get involved with a little bit and witness, and it came from a, a, a non-governmental organization that was trying to figure out ways to control dengue mosquitoes without using these harsh organophosphate chemicals that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, and so what they did was try to engage existing uh, community groups, These uh, what became something called the Consejos del Poder Ciudadano, um, which is a sort of Sandinista-inspired base community group. 
um, and local local kids um, to basically become brigadistas and to engage in their uh, sort of the blocks around where they live um, in looking for mosquitoes and learning about where they were um, learning to identify larvae and mosquitoes by sight um, and basically doing a little bit of science. Um, and, you know, the insight that these planners had was a great one, which is that, and this, you see this in lots of dengue endemic areas, which is that kids love this kind of stuff, right? Um, kids do like learning new things and they do like going out and doing uh, what they've learned, right? And, you you know, we, we try to tell ourselves this even in our college classrooms and try to get them to do some practical learning. So, yes, uh, that was, um, you know, if, it, it, the, the, the idea was that if you could get children and um, and even adults sort of engaged in this very active way with doing the science, then you wouldn't necessarily need them to uh, be sort of dependent on uh, chemicals or the state necessarily uh, to prevent these things. But it became complicated, of course, because... Um, the act of engaging in the environment made people notice where the state was absent um, and made people ask questions about um, why they, why the government wasn't able or uh, willing to address certain problems that were uh, connected to dengue, right? Problems of basic infrastructure, um, for example. So uh, yeah, so that was an, a, a sort of a new, um, and I, I found largely a kind of hopeful um, approach uh, to the dengue problem. Um, it wasn't always entirely successful, but it but it certainly revealed um, how much people are really willing to um, uh, to move beyond the sort of basic. Uh, reliance on chemicals or, or other kinds of technologies to do public health. Yeah, and in a way that um, that leads us to the to the way that you close the book, which for me was really a fascinating aspect of of all of this stuff, and, and that has to do with time and temporalities. You have this really great analysis of of temporal incongruities, right? So you talk about the ways that disease, mosquitoes, weather budgets, immune systems, and even the idea of the emergency all work along different timelines. Um, and the way that bringing more than human actors into the story means that you have to account for these temporalities. And in some ways, people people within the story also have to account for these different temporalities, right? And that, that, was, really, um, that was really fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, so one of the ways in which people in Ciudad Sandino think of themselves and uh, and, and, and of the city is as a, a city that exists because of emergencies and a city that is somehow particularly susceptible to emergencies. And we tend to think of emergencies as these rather unexpected one-off kind of catastrophic events, right? Um, earthquakes and floods and hurricanes come to mind. But uh, dengue, very often also couched as uh, a local emergency was something that happened reliably every year. So it, it was what I call, you know, it's a seasonal emergency. And so dengue has a seasonality. Um, and within that seasonality, there's all other kinds of temporal patterns. For example, the 10 to 14 day growth cycle of the mosquito from larva to pupa to biting adult, um, the 60 day or so uh, efficacy of the chemical that's used to suppress the growth of that mosquito, um, the uh, patterns of rainfall, which may change in a given year. Um, and, and as you mentioned, also the allocation and the budget uh, of the government uh, for stopping these and other diseases. So um, I, the, the idea of temporal incongruity uh, really seemed to work to try to get at how people 
um, worked within the gaps in these different kinds of temporalities. And I actually think that um, it's because of those gaps, again, that people um, sort of become affectively and um, sort of personally and collectively engaged um, in uh, in public health. That is, um, when our infrastructure seems seamless, um, when we don't think about where the water is going to flow or we don't think about where the medicine is coming from and where it goes or we don't think about this sort of basic uh, building blocks of, of health, um, we don't need to really be emotionally um, or collectively engaged in doing health. It seems to just happen. Um, and one of the insights from science and technology studies is that we know infrastructures when they break down, right? Um, and then that's when we think about it. Very often it's because of an earthquake or a flood. Um, well, in Ciudad Sandino, the infrastructures are never that seamless. Um, and so people, uh, in order to do public health, have to sort of um, suture things together as best they can. And um, I think there's a lot of us in medical anthropology who are sort of noticing and learning a lot about care um, through looking at these um, kinds of partial entanglements. Um, so in places where resources are not perfect or are not adequate, um, where a hospital or um, public health infrastructures are only partial, um, what you're finding is not that people are giving up, that they're coming up, coming up with kind of creative ways to, uh, to engage. Um, and I think that helps us really understand what it means to have a collective sense of concern or care um, around health. Um, and so um, that's what I tried to get at in the last chapter by sort of walking through what uh, a dengue season kind of looks like, right? How different uh, manifestations of emergency appear and how people sort of prepare deal with and then sort of assess at the end um, a particular dengue season. And in that chapter, it's a bit of a composite of, of, of three dengue seasons, but um, there's all different kinds of ways in which time, time seemed to be the kind of thing that people were most concerned with um, sort of reconciling and understanding there. It seems a really useful way to think about health and healthcare in places like Ciudad Sandino or, or Nicaragua in contrast to the kinds of things, as you say, that we take for granted, right? So where there are gaps, people fill them in. And in some ways that becomes much more effective in terms of when, when, when the emergencies arise, they know what needs to happen. Right. So, so where, where do you think uh, dengue fever is right now in Nicaragua? What's the, what, at what point of the cycle are they and, and, we're coming to the end. We're in, you know, December, late December now, coming to the end of another dengue season. Uh, so the, the peak of the rainy season is really in uh, September, October, early November. Um, but because of the way that mosquitoes grow and the way that um, uh, uh, viruses sort of course through populations, um, the uh, the season really goes into around Christmas time. Um, uh, around Christmas in that part of the world, um, you get a nice uh, sort of increase in wind and a decrease in rain, um, which is good for sort of driving mosquitoes uh, uh, out of uh, a landscape. So at this point, uh, the Brigadista's work is probably uh, becoming, it's, it, it may be uh, sort of reaching its um sort of downslope at this point. Um, and um, so what we'll see in the early part of the year is the dry season where it'll get increasingly hot and the wind will increasingly die down. And um, you see less dengue at that time. There's just fewer places, fewer opportunities for mosquitoes to propagate. 
but a lot depends on the circulation of pathogens. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is that there's several different uh, strains of dengue that circulate at different times. Um, so when a new strain enters a population, particularly of children that have never been exposed to it, um, they can get, uh, you, you can have quite an intense epidemic. And sometimes that goes in, uh, not in yearly cycles, but in, say, uh, three or four or five year cycles. Um, so there's a lot of unpredictability, uh, but there is, of course, the predictability of the fact that dengue uh, is getting worse and worse pretty reliably every year. Since I started studying it in 2006, nearly every dengue season has been more intense, more morbidity, more mortality. Uh, and I, that doesn't seem to be abating very much. So the story's ongoing, really. It, it really is, and it's a global story. You know, dengue uh, has been a much more... Um, a uh, familiar problem in Southeast Asia where the virus originated um, for, for a longer time. Uh, so in places like the Philippines or in Vietnam, uh, you've seen dengue cases uh, become uh, really, really, uh, epidemics become really, really um, uh, large scale. In Latin America, that story is fairly new. It's really only been a big public health problem in Latin America for the past oh, 25 or so years. Um, and so uh, one of the things that public health folks tell me a lot is that the picture of Latin America today is what Southeast Asia looked like about 25 years ago. And uh, in the southern United States, South Florida, Texas, or, you know, those areas um, really look like what Latin America looked like um, 30 or 40 years ago. And so that is to say the disease is spreading. Um, it is uh, emerging in the United States uh, and in southern Europe. Um, and will probably continue to spread because there is no drug against dengue. There is no vaccine against dengue. So um, it's, um, it's, it's definitely an ongoing story. So the entanglements are going to continue. <laughs> I think so, yeah. And now they're just going to start to involve genetically modified mosquitoes and the vaccine trials and a whole host of other uh, new ethical and technological questions. That's going to be really fascinating to follow. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about your next project, and I wonder if you could share uh, with us a little bit about what you're, what you're planning to do next. Sure. Well, I guess I can mention two things. So as, a, as an outgrowth of this book, I did end up looking a little bit at uh, GM mosquito projects and, mosquito, and, uh, and, and dengue vaccine uh, development. So I've done some writing about that, but my, my newest research is um, on uh, – germs and parasites. So I became uh, fascinated over the last couple of years, as a lot of people have, with this new science of the microbiome, which is the collection of uh, microscopic creatures that live inside human bodies. Um, but as interesting to me that they, these creatures also lived on the surfaces and in the interstices of our built environments. So we talked a little earlier about houses. Houses have their own kind of microbial ecosystems. Um, I'm particularly interested in clinics and hospitals uh, in places like Nicaragua and in the United States, Canada, and Europe as well, uh, because uh, what we're increasingly coming to recognize is that uh, microbes, bacteria, uh, evolve quite quickly in these spaces. Um, their management uh, requires marshalling chemicals uh, and antibiotics and sort of combines really interestingly uh, kind of clinical and janitorial work. Um, and so I'm planning a project um, that will look at how people manage parasites and microbes uh, in Nicaragua in clinics and hospitals as well as households and also in farms uh, because 
uh, one of the ways in which people need to care for domestic animals, whether it's pets or livestock in this case, is by um, caring about the uh, worms and bacteria and other things that live inside of them. So I'm trying to sort of design a project that gets at how people um, relate to microbes in a place where um, they've always been, ever since there was a sort of conception of germ theory, people in Nicaragua have had pretty intensive social relationships with parasites and microbes. So things I'll be looking at are how people use antibiotics informally outside of a sort of prescription or clinical space, um, how they um, know when to uh, purge using chemicals or other uh, other remedies, uh, their bodies and the bodies of their children and their animals of, of parasites. Uh, so uh, sort of deparasiting is a practice that goes on in a lot of places in the developing world, and I'm interested in looking at that. And I'm also interested in comparing how... Um, under-resourced hospitals and clinics are confronting the problem of hospital-based infection and how that compares to the way in which we're doing that um, here in the United States where I am now, in Scotland where I uh, am going to be teaching and, and uh, in, in other parts of the sort of more uh, uh, complex and sophisticated uh, health infrastructures. So it's a kind of a big sprawling project, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in these social relationships with microbes. It sounds really, really fascinating and more and more relevant, I guess, as as uh, the microbes can travel further and faster and longer than they ever have before, right? Yeah, and they're doing things. We're, we're learning so much about what they do and how they uh, regulate our health um, in, in, in many good ways uh, as well as negative ways. And, of course, also what I, again, what, what's interesting to me is how um, – even in those spaces that are supposedly uh, sealed and sterile, uh, spaces like hospitals, um, there is a whole sort of uh, world, uh, microscopic ecology that's going on there that we have to kind of uh, get a handle on and, and understand. And so uh, in a way, this opens up a little piece of um, you know, medical ethnography that hasn't been explored very much. And that is the sort of the human infrastructure of, uh, of, of farms and hospitals, the people that are doing the very uh, basic uh, scrubbing and cleaning um, as well as and sterilizing, as well as the people that are doing the high tech kind of interventions. Um, and so that, that I think will be a really interesting um, area to open up for anthropology and science studies, but also uh, has a lot of important public health applications. If we're going to, really confront a post-antibiotic era, we need to figure out uh, different strategies by which we are relating to these things now. Uh, that is, we need to figure out where we are now before we figure out how we get out of here. Right. Well, um, I will really look forward to, to hearing more and reading more about that. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you, Alejandra. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies. See you next time.